Well, good morning, everyone. It's an honor, a privilege, and a little bit uh, intimidating to be here. <laughs> um, I'll just be totally transparent. I've been wrestling with this topic for three weeks, and um, we're going to do our best to get through it. <laughs> Chris has been teaching the last three weeks on, you know, kind of like, what, what is the church? What is it supposed to look like? What, what are we here for? Uh, what does the Bible say defines the church? Um, as individuals, the church community, what is the church look like, right? So we started in week one, we kind of defined, defined the mission and vision of the church. First uh, Peter 2.9, and by the way, sorry, I've got uber much scripture. Uh, so we are people of the book, we believe in what the word of God says, um, and there's a lot of it today. Uh, so first one, First Peter 2.9, uh, the primary mission and vision of the church says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of God. That's the mission. That's the vision of the church. All right, and then week two, we got into kind of working within the church and those who are different than you, kind of the, the idea of not everyone's a hand and not everyone's an eye. People have different gifts and, and what that looks like functioning kind of within the church, right? Work three, three, God versus man. The message of Christianity is not, this is how you reach God, right? And it's also not, this is the man of God who acts as an intermediary between you and God. Um, it's not about how do we access God or tap into some supernatural power. But it's this, it's that God reached out to us while we were yet in sin. Christ gave himself for us to reconcile us to God. The action here is on God's behalf, reaching out to mankind, and we're responding to that. So out of all of those, Christianity is not advice, and it's not best practices for living. It's news, and the news is that something's been done for you. Trademark Chris Westbrook, I copied that out of, uh, <laughs> out of week one. But, but you know, I, I feel like so much today, guys, the, the church... We the church, and it seems like today, but guess what? If you look back a thousand and two thousand years ago, if you read the epistles, it's the same thing, right? People get involved in it, and people start to go, well, it means this, or, or well, it means that. And sometimes, yes to all of it, but not only this, and not only that, right? And we get focused on something, we get off in left field, because we've made the peripheral thing the thing. So what is the good news? What is, what is the something that has been done for us? Well, let's put it in Jesus' word. We call this kind of traditionally the Great Commission. But in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Great, most of us have probably heard that before, right? This is where we get sideways, though. Teaching them everything that I have commanded to you. What did Jesus command? Did Jesus command the Ten Commandments? Maybe. Did Jesus command the Levitical law? Maybe, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? If you go back into the Trinity, you could say that. But if we look at the words of Christ on the earth as they related to 
the application of humankind in life. Let's go through that. So what did Jesus command that we are to teach? Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus says, and this is Matthew 5, if you don't know, Sermon on the Mount, basically Matthew 5 through 7. It's kind of Jesus' introduction to like, bam, I'm on the scene, and I am fully God and fully man, and I'm about to lay it down for y'all, which I've been messing up for the last however many thousand years. This is what all this really means today. So he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the problem. Is that for a lot of years, a lot of men have interpreted that scripture and rained hellfire and brimstone and all manner of legalism on people kind of using that scripture, right? But here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to read what Jesus said. We're going to unpack. And I think as we do that, we're going to get maybe a different message out of what Jesus really means there than kind of the traditional sense. So Jesus indeed teaches the law. But what he proceeds to do throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is to clarify the intent of the law rather than what man had at that point warped and twisted it into and what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. And that's why he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So check this out. Starting in Matthew 5, Jesus kind of falls into this pattern of description. He says, you've heard it said blank, but I say to you blank, right? And almost every one of these you've heard it said is either out of the Ten Commandments or out of the Levitical law, right? And he says, but I say to you this. So he's just told us that not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass away. And he says this, but, right? And usually but carries some sort of contradiction with it, right? And it's not that Jesus is contradicting the law. Jesus is contradicting the interpretation of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes of the law. And he's saying, you've heard this, and you've known it this, and you've understood it and been taught it this, but it really means this, right? So some of these examples, anger. He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He said, but I say to you, if you are at the throne of God worshiping, and offering your sacrifice, and you remember your brother's got something against you, leave it. Leave it, and go be reconciled to your brother. Jesus says your brother is more important than your sacrifice to holy God. Now that sounds heretical to some of us, and certainly to the teachers of the law of the day, it sounded heretical, because they had become so focused on kind of like the the liturgy, right? The walking out of the formula to get to God, that they were hating their fellow man and loving God. Let's go on. Lust. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? So, in the past, there was, there was all this stuff. Like, if you find a woman in adultery, pull her out and stone her. Right? It was always, do the thing, do the bad thing to someone else. Right? And Jesus basically said, hey, look, the law is about you. The law is about making yourself clean. The law is not about other people. 
If this is not sitting right with you, just hang on. We're going we're to keep going. <laughs> Retaliation. What does Jesus say? Someone hits you, hit them back. No, nah, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Right? The law, the Levitical law said, if, if your neighbor's ox gores your ox, then you have the right to go slaughter his ox. Like, dude, it was bloody, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, nasty stuff. And Jesus goes, nah, man, that's, that's not what this is about. It's about, hey, let's don't take our advantage and go around goring other people's oxes, right? So Jesus is like, hey, if something happens to you, let it happen to you. The law is there to protect other people sort of from you, from those who would overreach, right? Who would uh, take advantage of the poor, the weak, the less than. It says, love your enemies, Matthew 5, 43 and 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. How can that be? Wait, you mean God does good things for wicked people? What? That's what the Bible said. What Jesus said, give to the needy, Matthew 6, 3 through 4. But when you give to the needy, but when you, when you give, not if you give, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't judge, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. Now here's what we do. We read the rest of the verse. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's clearly a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And most of us read that verse and we have a very high opinion of ourselves. And we say, I'm a Christian. I don't have a speck in my eye anymore. Or I don't have a log in my eye anymore. I'm a Christian. And let me help you with that speck. Is it fair to say that this side of heaven, there's no version of you that doesn't have a log in your eye anymore? Is that okay to say? I mean, I think it's sort of implied here, right? Go back to the beginning of the verse. Judge not, lest you also be judged. And what we're doing, what we do instead, it says, for the same measure you use, that will be measured to you. And we're like, okay, so there's, it's qualified now. It's qualified that as long as I don't judge more than I want to be judged, then it's okay for me to judge. And that's how we twist it. And I've heard that taught before. Maybe some of you have heard, that, heard this taught that way. Guys, it says don't judge. And it says the reason not to judge is because you're not qualified. Because you got a, a freaking pole sticking out of your eye. And you walk up to somebody, and you're like, hey, buddy. And, and immediately, you're, you're poking him with your pole eye thing. <laughs> you're not qualified to address anything in someone else's life. Paul breaks it down even more real world for us. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Right? People have read that scripture where he says that. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. And that means that then what we have to do is not associate with the world, right? It means we draw tight little lines around our box, around our house, our family, our community, our church. We don't let those people in, right? Because it says don't associate with them. 
Paul says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. Like, duh. When I said don't associate with sexually immoral, I meant like, hey, Mike, it's not cool for you to be sexually immoral and be like, oh, wait, I'm in the church, right? If you have a rapport with someone. But the dude on the street, it's not up to you. You're going to associate with him. All right, finish the verse. Sorry, I'm getting all riled up. But I'm writing to you, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immoral or immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What place is it of ours to judge someone who doesn't call themselves a brother in the close fellowship of our church community? Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? Now, some people will take that verse and they go, see, there's qualifications. It is okay to judge people in the church. I'm not quite sure that's really what that means. Because if you take the word brother there, I don't think brother really means the church at large, right? I think that means that, you know, the, the guys group here at church that are in close fellowship, you know, Mike, Chris, Duck, you know, Matt, we're up here playing music. We're in, we're doing life together. We're leading this congregation in worship. And it's known about, if it is known about me that I'm like hanging out in the strip club all week, it's perfectly right and reasonable for them to come to me and go, hey, Josh, listen, as a brother, we love you, but you cannot be in this position leading worship and actively living a sinful lifestyle. Now, here's the other thing. He calls them idolaters, revilers, drunkards. Those are things that define their character. That is not, oops, he got drunk once. That's not, oops, he, he fell into sin. That's he has made sin his lifestyle, and he's chosen it. There's a differentiator there, right? And so if, if there's someone in fellowship with us, close fellowship, and they are choosing a lifestyle of sin, I think it's reasonable in love to go to them and go, brother, this is not God's best for you. It's what we do here at CR every week, right? We go, guys, let's get you out of this mess. But we certainly don't stand on the street corner and tell them they're going to hell for it, right? So here's the crux. Here's kind of the overshadowing theme, the title, if you will, of today's message. What do Christians look like to outsiders? And by outsiders, I don't mean that those that are like unclean or evil or wicked or disqualified. Just those that are not in the community of faith with us. Right? What does it look like to someone who's a non-believer or someone who, maybe, this is what I hear a lot today. They go, yeah, I grew up in church and, and I have like my own relationship with God, but I'm just not much on organized religion. What does the church look like to those people? And I think the answer is the church is not a very appealing to those people. And that's why they're on the outside. Check this out. So what, is, what does Christians look like? Well, we don't drink, we don't cuss, we don't have any tattoos. We homeschool, quote C.S. Lewis, and we drive a gray Honda minivan. <laughs> right down the line. That's the list. If you're doing that, you're a Christian, right? Absolutely not, right? Let's go a little deeper. Check this out. What about picketing a gay pride parade and telling people God hates them and they're going to hell? Is that how most of the world sees Christians? I would submit there's a fair segment of the population that that's what, that defines a Christian. 
to them. How about blowing up an abortion clinic? Now, I didn't say abortion is good or abortion is okay. But if that's the definition of what being a follower of Christ means, my God, we've missed it. And who wants to be a part of that except some couple of fringe wacko nut jobs that hate people and want to see them die? We're going to go a little bit easier. Maybe we just tone it down. Maybe we just self-righteously mock people on Facebook, have different beliefs than us. Is that what a Christian is? Kind of like the, the Karen model of Christian? <laughs> Y'all, what does Jesus say Christians should look like? John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not that you abstain from this. Not that you drive a gray Honda minivan. Not that you espouse your beliefs super firmly to the point of being unfriending everyone in the world on Facebook. But love. So Jesus says this is a new commandment, but actually it's kind of a common theme. By the way, he gave that uh, like right after the Last Supper, right after he dismissed Judas. But the Pharisees and Sadducees <clears throat> had already tried to trip Jesus up on this thing. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four and 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, um, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now let's back up. Jesus said that thing about not one jot, not one tittle shall pass away. He said, I'm not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He uses the same phrase there. So is it a stretch then to assume that all the law and all the prophets that Jesus says he's not going to abolish is predicated upon love the Lord your God and love people? It seems reasonable to me. So all the law and all the prophets depend on love. Love God, love people. And yet somehow we've allowed Christianity to become twisted. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees twisted the law of God and Jesus said, you've heard it said this, but I say to you that. We've taken our message of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And instead we've turned it into this self-righteous bless me club. For those who are on the inside and those on the outside get condemnation. I want to tell you a story about my growing up. So I grew up, I was raised in the church pretty much since, ah, since birth. Mom and dad split when I was five. Um, most of the reason they split is because mom, not a believer, but grew up kind of in the Bible Belt of the South, right? Said, well, I want my boy to be raised in church. So she went to church, got radically saved, and dad said, peace out. Because I like doing life this way, right? 
So I had two sets of family to kind of observe in my growing up. I had my mom's side of the family, the Roberts, and the Roberts were all good Southern Christian people. We don't drink and we don't smoke, and if somebody does smoke, it's because he's backslid, and y'all pray for him now. Anybody ever been around somebody like that? And over here, I had the Vibert side, my dad's side of the family. And the Viberts were Yankees who had moved down to the coast off like Charleston and Savannah down there. And they were cussing, drinking, smoking, hell-raising people. Now, guess which group of people was kinder to me in my growing up? Give you a hint, wasn't the Christians, right? The Christians that I grew up, were a bunch, grew up around were a bunch of judgmental, haughty, terrible people who justified every form of sin as backsliding. And then all of a sudden we're right back on the train and glory, hallelujah, off we are until it happens again next week. <clears throat> but if, if I'm all of a sudden off the backslide train and I'm not smoking, then so-and-so who is, even though I just was two days ago, but I'm, I'm reformed, now he is, now he's the devil and going to hell. And meanwhile, my grandmother and my aunts and uncles were some of the most loving people I'd ever met. And I said, I said, what, what is this? You know, as I read the Bible, as I, you know, five, six, seven years old, going to Sunday school and learning the little Bible stories, you're like, why is it that the people who say they don't love Jesus or, or don't overtly proclaim to love Jesus look more like Jesus than the people who talk about Jesus all the time. It's kind of a problem, right? We call that hypocrisy, by the way. So what's the answer? I think, I think the answer is we need to let Jesus define for us what we as Christians are to look like. And, and there's kind of a lot of scars, there's kind of a lot of baggage there's a lot of people, some of you may be those people who finally found uh, some truth, some light in your life, and you've spent years being put down upon by people who claimed themselves to be Christians, people who quote-unquote loved you and then stabbed you in the back, right? Maybe you've got friends like I do who are still on the outside and say that they have a relationship with God and they vowed never to set foot in the church again. They're missing it. And whose fault is it? Not really theirs. I mean, you could say it's their choice, right? But how'd they get there? Friends of mine that grew up in the church, just like I grew up in the church, and were so hurt and wounded by the very people that were supposedly sworn to uphold the righteousness of God, and have cut them off. I want to read kind of a long passage here, if you guys will bear with me. This is one that's actually kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, it's Jesus speaking, and it's kind of a terrifying story, and yet I think it brings some things into focus about what Jesus would say about his followers, and ultimately who he would welcome into eternal rest with him. It's Matthew 25, 31 through 39. When the Son of Man comes in his glories and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. And to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but they're righteous into eternal life. Now I wonder how many of us today or how many that you would hear from would say, well, why should we visit those in prison? They broke the law. They're evil. They're wicked. They don't deserve to be visited. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They shouldn't have squandered their money on lottery tickets and drugs. My goodness. Me too. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Y'all, they did it. They did it. If someone walked in this room right now, laid hands on someone, healed the sick, healed the lame, cast demons out, prophesied, would you not say, absolutely, they're a Christian? And Jesus says, you can do all of those things. And he says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How can you do these things in the name of God and be called a worker of lawlessness? And I would submit to you that Jesus is talking about the same thing as his parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Because he's just finished talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's calling them the workers of lawlessness. He's calling the ones that are more interested in upholding some, some facade of righteousness, some manner of religion above reaching to the needy and the hurt and the broken and the lost and proclaiming the marvelous light of the glories of our creator, a message of hope, a message that something has been done for you. Come and receive is the message of the gospel. Not don't do this, don't do that, abstain from this. So what are we to do? How do we behave to those who are outside? Romans 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
You place judgment on someone and you're doing the same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance? It says in scripture that the law comes but to bring judgment and death. There's no version of keeping the law that leads to life. It's kindness, the mercy of God, and the giving of his son Jesus that we didn't deserve. That's, what, that's the kindness, that's the mercy of God that brings us to repentance. It's not in preaching the law that says, hey, you better do this or else. No one repents because of that. Or if they do, it's short-lived. The only way you create sustainable life for a believer and multiplicative life, right? Not just, hey, we got you saved, now stay saved until you die or until Jesus comes, right? All right, we got you saved, now, now do your best, don't mess up and stay saved. No, get saved and go tell every, all of your friends about the radical transformation in your heart and in your life. Jesus healed a blind man. Jesus healed a lame man. And what could they do but go run and scream and shout the glories? And where does the healing of a leg or the healing of eyesight compared to eternal salvation, the redeeming of your eternal soul? And yet, which are we more comfortable declaring? Sorry, that was off script. <laughs> so let's go back. Our mission, our vision. First Peter 2, we're going to read verses 9 and 10 this time. Proclaim, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the marvelous light. That's the hope, the mercy of God through the blood of his son, Jesus. So if those outside the faith are our enemies, I'm not convinced that they are, but assume that they are, then let's treat them as Jesus commanded and let's love them and let's pray for them. Let's remember that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, Ephesians 2, 3 through 12, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, can, no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the gospel. This is what we should be proclaiming. God loves you. God moved heaven and earth to reach out to you. There's nowhere you can go that he won't follow you. There's nothing you can have done that can ever separate you from his love for you. That's the message of the gospel. Not don't drink, don't cuss, don't get tattoos, don't do this, don't do that. 
And yet, why is it that when you ask someone outside the faith, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, go to church. Uh, uh, don't cuss, I guess. Guys, we've missed it. No wonder. You know, people look at statistics and they say, oh, the church, the population of the church and those that call themselves Christians is down lower than ever before. It's the same God, the same Jesus, and the gospel hasn't changed. But I would submit to you what may have changed is what Christians have put emphasis on. What Christians have said, this is our flag and this defines who we are. And it's not Jesus and it's not the mercies of God and it's not an eternal hope of salvation. But those, that is our message. That is our, our call is to proclaim mercy, life, eternal life to those. This is what we should be known for as Christians. Let's stand.